Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Hi, everyone. My name is RJ Olmstead. I'm a guy from Central AZ, and I'm here to talk today, and the honor of talking today, about Christian community. Christian community is a really broad topic. I, uh, I would not be able to cover the entirety of it in one session, and the reality is, is I'm going to try and simplify this as much as I can. I'll be focusing out of Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, James, and 1 Thessalonians. But my basic premise that I'd like to get across is that the Christian community is a vessel of Christ that serves in unity, accountability, and love for the preparation of Christ's return. Those of us who have been Christians a little while, it's not terribly hard to remember the basic ideas of the gospel, but just as a refresher for why Christian community exists, the reality is that humanity is very fallen. We've succumbed to sin so many times and for so long that we desperately needed a savior. And we now have one, but the entire premise of the Old Testament is that this coming Messiah, whoever he would be, would be the renewal, this redemption for humanity. And this is what we see in the New Testament of Jesus. His life, his ministry, his sacrifice and resurrection, all of these things are what culminates into Christ redeeming all things. And this is also the formation of the church. This beginning of Christian community is based around the idea that under Christ we are redeemed. And it's beautiful because, using the Romans 12 example, we see so many different pieces and people coming together and, well, living together in Christian community in a way that hadn't been done before because we recognize the functions of the Christian community body. And yet, in all of this, it could be all broken down into, well, Christian community, no matter the eschatology that you hold, serves and glorifies God, preparing the way for Christ's second return. To really go back to the basic premise, the Christian community is a vessel of Christ that serves in unity, accountability, and love for the preparation of Christ's return. I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 8-10. through 10. 1 Corinthians is a common letter to review when you're looking for how to correct people's, well, behavior, I guess is probably the simplest word. And ultimately, we should consider that 8 through 10 is the heart of this letter. It speaks of how they are meant to be considerate. In terms of being of Christ, the Corinthians' actions, while not abandoning faith, were certainly not of Christ. 8 through 10 is the heart of that idea. And so I'm going to be reading different portions, but I'd first like to consider... Paul's principle of considering those around us. In verses 10 through 13 of chapter 8, he's speaking further about food sacrifice to idols, and some people were okay with this and some people weren't. And he comes down to the idea that if, if anyone sees you having knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, 
Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you've sinned against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I would never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And this is a hard concept that gets pulled a lot of different directions, but the most fundamental idea is that in all things, as a basic premise, we are to be considerate of different stages of maturity. He speaks about if someone is weak in conscience, for if anyone has knowledge of eating. These are terms that were really associated with how far along in the faith you were, and it still exists today. To be considerate of each other and be considerate of each other's maturity is fundamental in how we relate to one another in Christian community. Paul doesn't stop there, naturally, and he continues on in chapter 9. I'm going to focus 19 through 23, but chapter 9 speaks of how Paul is serving those around him. And it's a very fundamental part of Christian community that we are inherently different from the world because our foundational premise of Christ is a servant. And so we mimic him, and Paul is describing serving the gospel in this way in multiple ways, speaking of being a Jew to Jews, of being a Gentile to Gentiles, of being weak to the weak, and all things to all people is what he gets to in the end before saying, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them, being the people he shares the gospel with, in its blessings. To experience Christian community is to be of service and to understand those people around you. Again, a hard concept for many of us today, and yet it's so unmistakably important. We're not changing ourselves, we're not watering down the gospel, but we are being understanding and considerate of those around us. Chapter 10 is Paul's final bolster into this idea when he starts beginning an idea of learning from those who've come before us. Israel was naturally the Old Testament version of the church, as it was God's people. And the church is picking up where they've left the torch in Christ. Obviously, there were Jews in the original church, and so it continues on. And yet, Paul is very strict. He speaks in verses 1 through 15, comparing these, like these things that some did don't do. Uh, don't be sexually immoral, as some of them were. Don't uh, fall to temptation of idolatry, as some of them were. Uh, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, is this final line that he comes to, understanding that many people in the church feel that they've experienced something that nobody else can compare to, and he shuts it down immediately and goes, let no one think that he stands lest he fall. Meaning that let nobody think that these temptations that you're facing are A, manageable by yourself, and B, only yours. This is all, again, in the premise of being of Christ. To be of Christ is to be considered for those around us, to serve those around us, to learn from those before us, and to live accordingly. Ephesians 4 is where I'll head to next, and I'm connecting this because being of Christ and being in a community is a hard thing to rectify for a lot of people, to impose 
on itself the idea that we have to be singular members of a body, not taking away from each other, and yet also being considerate of each other and serving each other. It creates tensions. And Ephesians speaks of such tensions pretty explicitly until Paul finally gets around to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He goes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul doesn't approve of these divisions that are occurring at all. He doesn't like the idea of people using different teachers and, uh, well, pastors, I guess in our case, uh, to cause division amongst themselves. We are community. We're of Christ and we're called to be different from the world and so we ought to be unified in doing so. And he lists some of the traits that are necessary to be so. A Christian community, by this understanding, is humble. It's gentle. It's patient and it bears itself with love, eager to maintain a unity in the spirit, which is our bond of peace. It's interesting to try and understand this in a day and age where so many people want to fight about so many different things. And rightfully so, but at the same time, it should have never encroached upon the church. And Paul seems to mean this idea by providing a way out. He's speaking of roles, and he says, And he gave, God gave, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, those of the church, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says it's not just a matter of unity, but unity because you are not all things. Paul was being all things to all people in the context of understanding them, of preaching the gospel to them in a manner that he could understand for them. And yet here he says, and yet you don't fulfill all roles. Going back to Romans 12, the idea that you can't have the eye say to the hand, I don't need you. In our different roles, we inherently have to be patient, have self-control, have humility, be loving to one another, because we've been given the spirit that enables us to do so, and yet never assume that we are able to take over for another person until we've reached such a point in unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to measure the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our standard is Christ, and in that standard we find unity. So what happens when that unity is achieved and yet we don't fulfill our roles? Well, James is probably one of the most... I won't say kind, but certainly one of the most clear about this problem, especially in James 2. It has come out of talking about the way the world works and how those who are rich, their riches fade, and yet Christ remains, and we are to consider such things a joy to us who struggle. In chapter 2, he turns it, and he starts addressing the reality that partiality has begun growing in the church, that this unity that people have attained has resulted in poor treatment of others, that the unity attained has also left people without humility, without self-control, without love for the people that they ought to love. And so James 2 speaks of, For if a man wearing a gold ring 
and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you sit here, in a good place is what you say. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is arguing that you think you're unified. You think you've come together and yet you show partiality. You create infighting. You create divisions amongst yourself. That's not unity. And so he says no preferential treatment is proper. I'm going to go further in and you see that it's not just a matter of we shouldn't do these things but we ought to hold each other accountable for it in chapter 4 of james verses 15 through 17 he speaks instead you ought to say if the lord wills we will live and do this or that speaking of course of people who think that they can plan months ahead for the sake of money and verse 16 picks it up and it says as it is you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This isn't a manner of don't plan, but rather a you are going about in arrogance. And the church has a tendency to do this. Some of us at least definitely do. And we struggle because this also creates division. And what is the proper response? Well, accountability is the proper response. James 5 is, of course, the most clear in this, and especially in verses 19 and 20, he's speaking of all of these things come down to a single point. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death will cover a multitude of sins. This isn't glory for us, I should clarify. It's rather clear in James that he consistently redirects back towards God that our actions are meant to be an extension of our faith. And part of that in Christian community amongst unity and amongst corrections is corrections based on accountability. We aren't to be arrogant boasting of ourselves trying to figure out our own ways. We aren't to assume that our unity gives us the opportunity and right to treat people differently. But rather we are to hold each other accountable. And which is where I'd like to take over to first or sorry, first Thessalonians four and five especially, in which Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who have become rather idle. And he's speaking towards not just the premise that your idleness is without purpose, but that you ought to be doing something, similar to how James was speaking of accountability in our actions. Inaction is not the proper response. Picking up in verse 3 of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. For as in brotherly love, you have no need of anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And I pick up here after James for a very 
specific reason, which is there's a misconception that accountability is harsh. That accountability is raw and it creates tensions, which it does. But there's a necessity to understand as well that doing so, and by doing so I mean holding people accountable, is meant to be done in love for the sake of sanctification. We seem to skip over the sanctification and why it matters, but if we continue in First Thessalonians, we see fairly well why. Picking up in verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So being aware of leaders, verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, as in those not doing work, Encourage the faint-hearted, as in those weak in conscience. Help the weak, physically weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is verse 15. I think verse 15 is probably the most concise summary of my point. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is the premise of how we are to treat one another within this unified body of Christ and how in holding each other accountable, we do so, admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with them all. And it's at this point that we turn towards the progress of sanctification and preparation for Christ's return in verse 16 through 22. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good, abstaining from every evil. We see not only the process of how sanctification is meant to be used as a standard through Christ, but also how we approach this, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, not quenching the Spirit's works and not despising what is said, but testing everything. It's a hard reality for a lot of modern churches. This, of course, becomes a hard reality because of today's culture. In today's culture, at least in the West, it's not an existence of persecution anymore, but of one where politics and denominations and theological differences cause entire churches to split. And so we've come to a point where instead of relying on Christ and being independent from the world while living in it, we've brought the world into the church, relying on opinions of it. And please don't mistake me, I understand. Culture is unavoidable, and yet culture is critiquable. It's changeable. It's not meant to sit idly while the church rots in it, or rather around it, as it should be. Instead, we're called to rely on Christ fully, to be of Christ in unity, holding each other accountable with love and preparation for his return, to be independent from the world while living in it, and changing culture, not culture-changing community. This naturally goes into the nature and function of Christian community, and it's important to remember, I believe, what it is that Christ said during his high priestly prayer in John 17, as it's called, especially in verses 22 through 26. The glory that you have given me, Jesus speaking to the Father, I have given to them, speaking of the disciples, 
that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, unified. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Christ's high priestly prayer in this context is, or sorry, in these verses, is promoting this notion of what Christian community ought to be. It's not a simple gathering. It's not a passive thing by any means. Instead, we are loving one another clearly and definitively as a response to Christ. And when people ask why, we can approach them with Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29 especially. But I would love to read 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, speaking of God. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, speaking of those who God has judged, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, speaking of Jesus ascended. At that time, his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Going back to discussing human fallenness and the necessity for a Savior, this, this is why is our God is a consuming fire, and yet in Christ, through redemption, we find that we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are living out the reality of a kingdom that is coming and already here through our community. If the church and Christian community as a whole, if you declare to distinguish between them, is a vessel of Christ that serves in unity, accountability, and love for the preparation of Christ's return, then we are serving the kingdom. It's just a reality that our culture desperately wants this to not be true and have the emphasis be on individual persons. But it's crucial that we recall what the church is meant to be, not what we want it to be for the sake of our comfort or for the sake of proving our point individually. We're called to be of service to one another. We're called to hold each other accountable. We're called to love one another. Even when it's hard, even when everything in a culture seems to want to split us apart, and we're called to do these things to their fullest measure and extent because not doing so is faking being the church. In failing to uphold service to one another, in failing to hold each other accountable, in failing to love one another, we fake being the church. It's a harsh manner of speaking, but it's a beautiful reality of why the Christian community is so different. We don't serve each other or hold each other accountable or love one another because we do things for each other, but because we are of Christ. And because we are of Christ, we approach 
joyfully this idea of being unified with one another under him, of serving one another because of him, of holding each other accountable to follow him, to love one another and prepare the way for him coming back is all a privilege. I'll read Hebrews 12, 28 as an emphasis for my final point, which is, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Being a Christian community that does these things, that loves, that holds each other accountable, that is held tightly to unity and is doing so while being of Christ, is to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're called to these great things through Christ, and in him we receive it. To fail to do so is to fake being the church, and yet to fulfill doing so is to be Christian community. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusky Bible. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.